0: Go to school and hey. What
1: do you think of what's going on right now, mate? These evil little invisible parasites. Satan worshipping Freemason Moral. There are much more powerful international forces in play. Is this Pink Guy? Is this what Pink is? I don't you fucking know what's happening. <laughs> Please get outside and look at the moon quickly. It's been crazy, guys, but guess what? It's how it is, mate. Mate, because I want to do program. this one. Well, I ain't spending any time, mate.
0: Welcome to the Conditional Release Program. I am your host, Joel Hill, here with Yaakov Aron today because Jack is busy. This is part two. You probably heard part one. If you didn't, you probably should because a lot of things are going to be intermingling. We're looking at the social and legal and political relationship between Israel and Palestine from an insider voice, from someone who is an Israeli citizen, but also someone who believes that Palestine should be free, safe, and prosperous, which is a nice thing because I think we're going to try and get something from something of a centre. You know, it's been a bit of like a you're either picking a side. Let's not pick a side. Let's look at both sides, but let's try and understand that both sides require a degree of empathy, but also some things that both sides are doing are kind of fucked. Um, So let's not cheerlead one or the other. Let's establish the fact that everyone here are good people, but also kind of fucked. So we've got Yakov here and we're going to delve into some more pretty serious political nature and maybe touch on some disinformation stuff and a little, a few cooker things and an interesting cooker theory about Yitzhak Rabin's assassination, which I was a bub when that happened. And uh, I've always been curious to know more about it and never really bothered to find out
1: more. So now it's here on a platter. Of course. And most importantly, this is coming from the real centre, not those people who are a tiny bit left of me, they're cooked. Not the people <laughs> who are a tiny bit to the right of me, they got no idea. Yeah, you yeah, are speaking it. to the, the one true center of the entire conflict.
0: I love that. That's very good. And we, we do speak about the fact that some of the people that the left are aligning with on the Jewish space are actually terrifying rapture loving motherfuckers. And uh, I mean, look, it's a mess out there. So hopefully this is going to give some kind of reason to it, something clear. Now, the other thing is, is that I am in the very precarious position of having to give beer plugs. Now, I gave you one last week and I told you about the the, the, the coupon code. At CRP10 at checkout at cvco.beer. It's a very good deal. But the thing is, is that I'm about to talk with Yakov about things that are really divisive and really fucked. So obviously, plugging beer sucks. But at the same time, it brings people together, Joel. It does bring people together. So the discount code is fantastic. And look, it will get you cheap cold beers. So look, you know, if there's one thing that's going to bring us all together, it is cheap cold beers well they arrive warm but i mean you know that's that's by the by so look that is the beer plug for this week but i don't want to lay it on too thick insofar as we are about to walk into some very divisive and unpleasant territory and we just need to you know all be very respectful
1: yeah absolutely again most importantly you won't find impartiality and lack of bias like this anywhere else
0: yep yeah,
1: and that, I think that's what we need. Not like anyone else. Not like anyone else, you hear? It's what we
0: need. It's what we need. And I think, uh, so let's, let's dive straight into it. Thanks, man. <laughs> so when you're in Palestine, one thing that was probably a bit of an elephant in the room, maybe a bit of a concern for you, was the fact that you are, and I'm not saying this in any kind of pejorative way, you know, I love you dearly, obviously Jewish. I could tell, so they would have known. But they were cool with you, right?
1: Uh, yeah. Listen, I, I did have to be a bit careful that I wouldn't poke anyone's eye out with my nose, but I, <laughs> the, I generally—that
0: yeah, is so brutal.
1: <laughs> I generally got along just fine. I didn't feel threatened or intimidated at all. Uh, you know, besides, for actually, when I was on the plane there, I almost had several anxiety attacks. Got stopped at the airport many different times. Yeah. They. We're pretty skeptical that someone could be as anxious as I was without some sort of- Being dodgy. Dodgy motive. Yeah. 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 But once I touched down, things were pretty sweet. Yeah. Yeah. And it was was quite a culture shock. It was very surprising. Yeah. It's hard when you see the sort of like the
0: dilapidated state of things and just the general sort of like, you know, that sort of subjugation you would have heard of in in practice. Mm. But like, yeah, I've got a parallel to when I went to Pakistan and, you know, I was in the northern- areas the federally administered tribal areas that are all a bit sort of chaotic and mad and very very religious and atrocities happen in those places like you know schools are shot because girls are attending these people invite you to their homes and you know share tea with you and stuff and you're like how i can't reconcile this and you've got this idea of this sort of you know taliban boogeyman and you find it really difficult when you're there with these people and you're like where are they? Like, are they hiding? Are, are they, you know, where where are they hanging out? Because I'm not bloody seeing them. So, you know, when people put this sort of blanket term of, you know, blah, blah, terrorism on the Palestinians, and I think a lot of people lap that shit up, it'd be pretty difficult to subscribe to such an idea after being there and being accepted, even though you were the, you know, so-called air quotes enemy.
1: Yeah. Listen, certainly people have made the argument that I was some sort of useful idiot. Useful um, idiot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the good Jews, but there was also a lot of Jews who said, no matter what it is that you are to them, you are going to return in a body bag. We're maybe going to see you on some sort of TV footage surrounded that's by some guys in scimitars dark. with a mask on. Yeah.
0: Uh, so
1: I had these sorts of voices in my ear. And yeah, and that's
0: that would have been quite...
1: Anxiety-inducing, quite sure. anxiety-inducing, and yeah. these were the sorts of voices that I was uh, raised around, that I myself once was, once upon a time.
0: Yeah, and
1: so yeah. It, it took quite a bit to shrug it off. Ultimately, yeah. I still came back with all of my fingers, all of my toes. Yes, and I'm pretty thankful for that.
0: Better or worse, but uh, yeah, and like the. The confronting of that sort of thing is really important and it gives you a a sort of sense of impartiality. The idea that you could possibly be being played for some sort of PR purpose is such a cope. When I was there over in Pakistan, we were an American. American, it was a Pakistani journo, American journo, and an Italian journo. And we were being followed by the intelligence services, but the American was making me terrified because he was Mm -hmm. obviously American. He sounded like an American. He wasn't able to not sound like an American. And they had death to America spray painted on several walls as we went through several areas. And they, they were fine. They just did not care. Like the concept of America, they were pretty upset with. But the mm. American, they weren't like, oh, fuck you. It was great. And I was like, fuck, man, if anyone's going to get beheaded, it's you, bud. So, yeah. you know, be my human shield, my my beautiful American human shield. But no, there's never a problem. So, think mean, these personal experiences are important, but obviously everyone can't just up and go to – gaza and check the place out but it is Im- it's important to exercise a sense of assumed empathy uh, in a in a vacuum where you don't you know you haven't come sort of face to face with it because it's easy very very easy and something i used to do all the time which is just to see people as chess pawns and you know if hamas attacks israel then retaliatory strikes are justified well that's not you know that's not what the eight-year-old with shrapnel going through their heads thinking mm. You know, you know and, and and also, you know, as we were just talking in the pre-record, let's not just completely fixate on children. Children are dying, but like, you know, adults dying sucks as well. Yeah. I wouldn't really want to cop a rifle around to the face just because I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Absolutely. That'd be a bit shit. You know, you, you won't mourn me like an
1: eight-year-old, but I still want people to be sad. At least decently sad. At yeah. least, yeah.
0: I, you know, I want, I want a few tears at the funeral.
1: Yeah. But, yeah. you know, the just civilian casualty, rate right? And the, the fear that's in everyday people's heads about the other side is really quite indescribable to a person who hasn't experienced it. Yeah. Now, yeah. my brother has quite similar views to me, at least one of my brothers. Yep. And he went to Israel last year and <laughs> he did. We both like the, you know, approach of psychology of, you know, if you're scared of spiders, throw yourself in a room full of spiders and dogs. So what he did well, was he a Palestinian barbershop to give him a shave with a straight razor. Oh, wow. You know, again, no cuts, very smooth yep. shave, perfectly fine. Very vulnerable. Overcoming an anxiety attack. Yep. All for the price of a good shave.
0: Yeah. that's It's an interesting strategy, but I like it.
1: Yeah, it's, it makes a lot of sense. You know,
0: there's a knife to your throat, and, and they, all they did is just take the, take the hair off. That's good. I like it. Yeah. So let's maybe move into some more murky sort of space because one of the sort of elephants in the room here, and this is something that I've been seeing pushed on some places, especially with parallels to September 11, because, of course, the Jews were behind September 11. So the Jews were also behind this Hamas attack. I mean, is there even any reason to believe that they could possibly, in any way, shape, or form, have been implicit in allowing the
1: the recent attacks to happen? Surely not. I I don't. I don't buy that at all. I mean, the big thing is that there's a, a massive difference between asking a question and giving an answer when there's no evidence or when the evidence that, that's been provided to the public doesn't add up. Yes. Yeah. So at the moment, yes, there is a lot of the evidence that so just doesn't add up. Yeah. There's a lot of questions to be asked. There was clearly a monumental failure on, on you know the part of Israeli intelligence and the government there. Yeah. Does that mean that they personally let it happen? I haven't seen any evidence to say that. It's pretty insane. I'm not going to rule out a negative, but I'm still waiting for any evidence to to the effect that says, you know, that's what happened. Yeah, you might be waiting for a while now though, on that one, I'm afraid. There are a wealth of ways to twist the evidence and to misinterpret it, to, to peddle misinformation here. So, for example, in a recent poll on Infowars, I was actually shocked, it's considerably lower than I'd expected from the Infowars crowd, but... 60% of them said that they think that Israel had advanced knowledge of the attack and that they 60%. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Now, if you compare that to a poll conducted by the Dialogue Center of Israeli citizens, they found that 86% of respondents, including 79% of supporters of Bibi's coalition government, Yep. said that the surprise attack from Gaza is a failure of the country's leadership.
0: Okay, That's a fair quote. enough. That's kind of fair, though. I mean, it is a failure, right. I
1: suppose. But you could see how both polls could be interpreted in a certain way or, or misreported on as essentially asking the same question yep. or passed by someone who's not media literate. They would read it that way. Now... 94% of these respondents said that they also believe the government must bear some responsibility for the lack of security preparedness so that's the assault. Okay. And over 75% it, said that the government holds the most Yeah, fair enough. Well, I mean, look, the Mossad is well-funded and
0: well-kitted out and, you know, probably the part of the national identity, I imagine. And mm-hmm. seeing this get past the keeper must be pretty embarrassing and you'd be pretty pissed off because it's like, well, what the fuck is your job then?
1: Yeah, and yep. quick correction over there. A Very common mistake is that Mossad actually handles uh, external intelligence outside oh, the country, okay. kind of like uh, the CIA. Yeah, and the Shin Bet handle, uh, yeah, uh, okay. handles. Yeah, they handles the internal security, like the FBI. Yeah. Now, yeah. Yes, the, there's some very important questions to ask about what Israel knew and how it was that they at least did not seem to know that this was happening as it was. One of the big pointers here is that Egypt's government has warned Israel's government on many occasions over the past year that, quote, Hamas is planning something big. Uh, This was reported on by the BBC, uh, by the US Congressman Michael McCall, who was the chairman of the House of Representatives Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, and also by Egyptian politicians and intelligence officers who have decided to remain anonymous. Yeah, okay. Fair enough. Uh, they said that Egypt directly warned Bibi's office about something big, not only on many different occasions, but even three days before the attack had happened. Wow.
0: That's Yeah, that's got very 9-11 parallels where they yeah. say, you know, they knew this and they knew that. Whether these things are true or not, but it's
1: definitely the narrative they push. Well, they come from many different sources. You know, again, the BBC, yeah. the Republican chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee and yeah. Egyptian politicians in Intel. Maybe yeah. Netanyahu has denied these reports because, of course, he would.
0: Yes, of course, um, yeah.
1: And again, I don't have the answer. I can't tell you for sure that I know this is true. There's conflicting reports, but yep. there's many different sources. Yeah. Now, again, this could just be a massive failure of intelligence and government, which when you can't prove that there's malice involved, you assume incompetence. And, of course, conjecture, speculation, conspiracy thinking can really be used to twist the evidence and peddle misinformation according to what ed- whatever narrative it is you want to construct. So the anti-Biddy camp, they blame the Liquid's leadership, of course. They say yep. that the left-wing intelligence agencies and Uh, army officials would you believe they're considered left-wing in Israel I I
0: was going to say left-wing intelligence what the fuck are you talking about but you know it's like the woke military that the cookers talk about in the US
1: now apparently these are the guys who have sabotaged the information that is supposed to be passed on to Bibi Netanyahu and so this is part of some larger scheme to overthrow his government and put in a leftist uh, government in his place and and now that the attack has gone through, Bibi Netanyahu is left embarrassed and essentially a dead man walking. Yeah, okay. And then of course there's the pro-Bibi Netanyahu camp, who oh Jesus. I just described that as the anti-bibi camp, I noticed. And conspiracy thinking, they can really take whatever narrative it is that you want to pedal, and you can you can get there. So for example, anti-bibi camp. They blame the Kud leadership. They say that Bibi Netanyahu is an authoritarian populist right-wing leader. He benefits from war and chaos and a terrorist enemy that he can, you know, really exploit fear against. Yeah. And I really don't buy this because traditional political wisdom really points to a serious hit overall to trust in Bibi and his leadership. Yeah. yeah. As I mentioned previously, 79% of Bibi Netanyahu's own supporters believe that this is a failure of his government and his leadership yeah those are his own supporters it's not perfect not perfect he seems to be a dead man walking now there are still strong indications that in this poll generally speaking he can ensure his own survival despite the odds being stacked against him he he knows how to power through a turbulent time and a great political scandal
0: yeah that's fair call
1: now, then there is the pro-Bibi Netanyahu cab, or whatever's left of them, yep. who say, well, Bibi Netanyahu is the, the strong on security, defend the borders type of leader. He's more capable than anyone else of this. And the only way that he could have failed is because of the leftist intelligence agencies and military generals. Would you believe in Israel they're considered leftist?
0: Amazing. I still uh, find that very strange to believe. Yeah.
1: Yeah, okay. Like the the woke leadership of America's military, I guess. It is like that. Well, now there's gays
0: there, so it's all very woke. Yeah. They're not shooting the enemy. They're having sex in
1: trenches. Yeah. It's disgusting. Yeah. Now, the pro-Bibi camp, they say, well, the only way this could have happened is if the leftist agencies in in Intel and the military deliberately let it happen by failing to report back to Bibi as a way of sabotaging him. Mm -hmm. And, you know... Again, there's no reason to believe that this is true. It just goes to show how conspiracies can take you to whatever narrative it is that you want to advance. Now, one thing that I think is quite valid is Israel's premier left-wing newspaper called Haaretz. They published a short editorial on the 8th of October titled Netanyahu bears responsibility for this Israel-Gaza war. It's Mm -hmm. about 100 words, so I'll just read it out in full. Oh, wow. Okay, that's short. Short and concise. The disaster that befell Israel on the holiday of Simchat Torah is the clear responsibility of one person, Bibi Netanyahu. The Prime Minister, who has prided himself on his vast political experience and irreplaceable wisdom in security matters, completely failed to identify the dangers he was consciously leading Israel into when establishing a government of annexation and dispossession. When appointing B'Tsalal Smotrich... And Itamar Ben Gvir to key positions while embracing a foreign policy that openly ignored the existence and rights of Palestinians.
0: Yeah, so Ben Gvir, just for those who have not remembered, that's the guy with the picture of the little terrorist the, stab- the Yeah, shot the people in the, in the, in the mosque. mosque. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, oh, I actually have a very interesting story about when I visited Palestine. Okay. I visited that same mosque where the terrorist attack had happened. Oh, wow. To me, this is a story that more than anything else really showed in front of my own eyes just the absolute inequality between Palestinian citizens living under the military occupation and the Israeli soldiers. Yep. So it's a mosque, of course, no yep. shoes allowed. We come in, me and a study tour group, We we have a guide, the... People in the mosque are told to keep it down. They're they're quite quiet. The uh, people praying next door in the synagogue are quite noisy. Now, we are wandering around, and Israeli soldiers decide to come in because they have a a whole group of new recruits and they want to show them on the inside of the mosque. They're all wearing military boots, and they refuse to take their boots off. The, I guess, manager or coordinator of the, the mosque he has a very loud argument with the with the soldiers and he doesn't want to let them in but of course they're soldiers they are going to go in when they want to, when they want to yeah so he starts to lay down smaller rugs on top of the built-in rugs of the mosque for them to walk a kind of trail through so that they don't trample on the 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 mosque's floor i'm with guessing their with their shoes boots.
0: on yeah yeah Yeah, that's pretty sad.
1: They continue walking wherever they want after the rugs have been put down. Um, There was was no real purpose for this walkthrough other than to show new recruits around town. There was no military threat. There was no security threat. There was nothing special happening that day. In my eyes, it was a flex of power and authority for its own sake.
0: Yeah, and that's
1: shit. It's just, it
0: it does symbolize the sort of, just the status
1: quo. Yeah. And again, for this to happen on the site of one of the worst massacres ever in Palestine's history is really something else as well.
0: Yeah. It's very time-deaf. Yeah. And then I guess it's this, basically.
1: Yeah. Now, okay, I guess one of the the key bits of evidence that the Corkers are focusing on when they look at this is and again this is a very valid question to ask i'm not a fan of providing it as an answer how did it take israeli intelligence so long to react to the breach of the border wall uh usually they are incredibly prompt it takes them a couple of minutes maybe even seconds on this occasion it took six hours for the idf to respond to the the breaches yeah okay um There were soldiers who were on holiday for the Jewish festival.
0: Yep, that's fair. Who,
1: yeah, who got the call on a pager and they raced down the highway and they were kidnapped or or killed on the highway. Oh, wow. That was all part of the plan. There were soldiers who were killed in bed on military base in their underwear. And again, you know, usually the motion sensors on the walls will start beeping if someone even touches the, the border wall. Let alone yeah. if, you know, hundreds of people are running through with guns and and have cut a massive hole in it. And yeah, there's a difference, several seconds usually to several hours. Now, one of the things that cookers again have really tried to focus on is they've started to ask, much like 9-11 really, why were the Jews not there? I mean Is that the whole were, like
0: yeah, like were they you know, were they given advance warning to not be there or something?
1: Yeah, what were these what were these soldiers doing on the other side of the country when their base is down? So why were they having to race down highways? Why were they not forced to pick up everything and go and leave to the border straight away? Charlie Kirk, in an interview with Patrick Pet David, both of them cookers. Yeah. strongly implied that there was a stand-down order from the leftist intelligence agencies and military generals. Now, one thing that is important to note is, yes, a lot of the reservists who have participated in the anti-Bivie Netanyahu protests over the past nine months or so, they have. there's been a mass movement of, how do I say this, like civil disobedience of refusing to participate in the reservist military program. Okay. because they are lacking in trust more and more in Bibi Netanyahu's leadership of a of a country during wartime. Yeah. And this has caused a lot of debate. The The far right are labeling them as like, traitors, yeah. as people who are terrorist sympathizers. And <laughs> what's made this situation so difficult is now all of a sudden these reservists actually are responding to the call And they are fighting within the Israeli army. Yeah. They're they're participating. And they're fighting alongside comrades who have been calling them traitors for the past nine months. Yeah, that's not perfect. Now, again, I don't see any evidence for a stand-down order. Yep. Charlie Kerr claims that, you know, one of the big bits of evidence for this is that there was a really massive protest scheduled for this for the weekend after the attack, where people would gather in in Tel Aviv to go up against the Netanyahu government, and, you know, this is such a massive protest, and therefore there must have been some sort of connection. Charlie Kirk is a fucking shit for brains for even suggesting this because yeah, there have been protests like this every week, sometimes multiple times a week for the past nine months. This protest is nothing yep. special. Yeah, and it's it's disinformation to suggest otherwise. Hamas saw that it was up against the country that was divided, and it knew that on top of that there was a Jewish festival where many soldiers would be on vacation, and decided to launch a surprise attack. It shouldn't. It shouldn't be much of a, a high IQ strategy. It's pretty fucking yeah. straightforward.
0: Yeah, that checks out. It is. a difficult to take a person like Charlie Cook seriously, and yet here we are. You know, it's crazy that. that weedy-eyed little motherfucker is relevant to anyone. But I guess useful idiot. And yeah, somehow he gets his message out there. A bit of a Joel Jamal type, I suppose. You know, both turning
1: point twat. But yeah, now,
0: look, it is interesting. Yeah.
1: I I would suggest two reasons, two different ways of thinking to flip the, conser- the conspiracy theorist narrative on its head. Okay. The first is just look at the facts. Mm-hmm. Much of the Military was on vacation. Yep, the country was divided, and on top of that, Bibi Netanyahu has a growing uh, voter base within the West Bank and their settlers, and he has shifted a lot of the military resources over to the West Bank because there's a sort of a confidence and arrogance that Gaza is just under control. Yep, and West Bank is where most of the the fighting, the, the door-to-door combat, the terrorist attacks, the insurgencies have really happened in the past couple of years. And it's also where Bibi Netanyahu knows that he's, he's got some voters he needs to win. Yeah. That's where the soldiers were. That's your answer.
0: Yeah, okay. That's interesting.
1: The, the second answer is political philosopher, scientist, Naomi Klein. She came up with an idea called the Shock Doctrine. And the Shock Doctrine is the idea that governments, especially authoritarian ones, will never let a good crisis go to waste, Mm -hmm. essentially. A crisis is an opportunity to take what you have as a pre-existing agenda, something in the pipeline, and ram it through with very little public opposition, very little media opposition, and you can get it done quietly or you can get it done in a noisy way with, you know, people proudly waving your flag in the streets because they're happy it's finally getting done. They think, you know, for anything, this crisis proves that this is something we need to do. Now, Israel has had a pre-existing agenda for many years of annexing Palestine, of taking over the West Bank and decreasing Gazan's sovereignty and self-determination. They have had settlements in Gaza before. They they pulled out a lot of Israelis have been saying for many, many years that that was a mistake and that they need to go back in and take control. Mm-hmm. Bibi Netanyahu's party, Likud, is based upon the political ideology of a guy called Zev Jabotinsky, who was very explicit about wanting a Jewish state from the river to the sea, and very explicit in wanting the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. He writes about this in the essay, The Iron Wall. Now, Itamar Ben-Gvir and Bezalel Smotrich, again, have spoken for a very long time about the annexation of all of Palestine. Yep. And about the ethnic cleansing of all Palestinians. So you can see very clearly how this view and agenda is becoming more and more dominant within the Israeli government. And this is the straw that broke the camel's back. And finally, it was the crisis that that they were able to say, well, if anything proves that we should have done this a long time ago, it's now. And if if there ever was a time when we can make this palatable to the um, Israeli voters and to the international community, it's now. And they can smash this through. And that's what this is. It's it's the shock doctrine. Yeah. We saw governments exploit crises like this throughout COVID, throughout Hurricane Katrina, throughout yep. all sorts of natural disasters, throughout all sorts of wars. And now we're seeing it in Israel. Checks out. So what are the wider implications of this? So we
0: do look at this on a bit of an Israel-Palestine sort of basis. But the geopolitics doesn't really stop in the sort of that area. There are wider implications there. There are powers like Russia, Iran. These sort of names are thrown around. We tend to see the Western influence and the general thing of Biden cheerleading for the Israelis, which it's okay, it's fine for the US to be pro-Israel, but hasn't really given much regard to the Palestinians from what I can see. Aside from that. They do have comrades, but they have comrades in some pretty unpleasant places. Like Iran. Very shitty people run Iran and and they're they're in that sort of axis of, of alliance with the Palestinians. The Russians are a funny bunch, but they tend to be pro-Palestine. And and India, I think, is is there as well. What's going on with the wider geopolitical story on this?
1: Yeah, so in many ways it is possible to simplify it or reduce it. If you're lazy, to east versus west, or you know, yep. Judeo-Christian world versus the Arabs, I think that it's much more complicated than that.
0: Well, the Russians aren't exactly lodged in there, but one thing that is interesting is that you know the Russians aren't without a Jewish influence. You know, they are quite a religious sort of country,
1: and and yeah, you know, and mm. there
0: are Russian Israelis.
1: Yeah, I mean the Ukrainian-Russian conflict really was quite interesting to look at from an Israeli perspective. Uh, There was a lot of political football happening over which side has more Nazis sitting um, amongst them. Yeah, yeah. A lot of noise made uh, both by people who claim to love Jews or people who hate Jews about Zelensky's Jewish heritage, the Russian politicians who made comments about how this is worse than the Holocaust – for the 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 Russian Jews living in Crimea.
0: Okay, interesting.
1: Israel and Yad Vashem, which is Israel's Holocaust Museum, condemned these words and said that uh, that this was incredibly insensitive. They yes. urged Russians to take it back. The Russians didn't. No. <laughs> uh, there was there was another really interesting episode where Naftali Bennett, who was a uh, prime minister for a very short time of Israel last year, he offered. To help Putin and Zelensky broker peace, in a three-way meeting with just the three of them.
0: Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, we talk about that. Yeah,
1: yeah. Putin said yes, and Zelensky said no. Zelensky said that that Israel could not be a impartial peace broker throughout this. And at the end of the day, I mean, Russia, I think they they tend to vote against Israel in places like the UN, they tend to vote for sanctions, they tend to condemn Israel in the media, but they still have very close relations with Israel behind the scenes. They buy uh, Israeli military tech and and surveillance tech. They also also, uh, have a very significant population of Russian Jews living in Israel who have immigrated there. And a lot of Putin's oligarchs who are closest to him are very staunchly pro-Israel Jewish oligarchs.
0: So one of the things that we know about the US is that anything that the left does, the right will then kick and scream and bitch and fucking moan about and oppose violently. It's like the opposition defiant disorder that kids have. The Republicans are no different except for the fact that so much of their money, as you've said before, comes from evangelical Christian types, classic Republican donors. So you'll see a lot of pro-Israel stance from people who traditionally tend to just oppose Biden on just about everything. It's been confusing to watch, especially for those who tend to be on the pro-Russia sort of side. Can you flesh this out for me? Because I have not had time to look into it. And, you know, what are these cooked, reactive dickhead Republicans up to in the face of Biden being what is nothing more
1: than a fucking cheerleader for Israel? Well, as you can expect from the Republicans, they are really selling out all of their principles. They've really staked a lot of their careers as of late on pretending to be anti-war because they shill for Putin or peddle conspiracies against Vladimir Zelensky or, or Hunter Biden and their activities in Ukraine. So these Republicans like Josh Hawley, Jim Jordan, Matt Gates are suddenly quite pro-war, funnily enough, waiting for a lot of the relocations of their funds from Ukraine to Israel and actually for increasing military aid expenditure overall. One mm. interesting case for this is Vivek rhymes with cake Ramaswamy who initially supported withdrawing all foreign aid from Israel because of some sort of isolationist policy. Yeah, of course. Um, Very Trumpian sort of thing, you know. Yeah. And maybe he d- cracked at the, the numbers and looked at the, the data and thought that, hey, Twitter. Trump's fascist fan base and, and, you know, Nazis are growing in America. Maybe this will be a winning ticket. Yep. He backtracked on that and then began to support aid to Israel again in August. And I'm then- guessing there's a money reason for that backtracking. Maybe, maybe. But then he has recently come out in the past week as pro-Palestine again. See, he's flip-flopping all over the place. Who knows where his principles or opinions really lie. But these guys, you can make a safe bet, are not the anti-war peaceniks that they pretend to be. They're people who want to oppose whatever it is that they think the Democrats support. And they want to... They want to bring on a new Cold War and they they, they want extra money from their military-industrial complex donors.
0: Yeah, fair enough. I always thought they want more of a unique selling point to get their $20 donors from their cooked fucking supporters because one of those things that cookers get off on the idea that they are special and a lot mm-hmm. of these sort of politicians tend to capitalize on that and say, basically, I'm the only one saying what you want to hear or fucking hardwired into out- info wars, and I'm the only one who's repeating those those talking points, and that mm. gets you that sort of cult like following that will put fifty bucks into your campaign more than once over a period because they genuinely think they're getting a return on their investment because you know the trans agenda is not going to go and eat their children or World War Three is not going to happen or World War Three is going to happen because they want the rapture, but either way. This is the kind of really good way to get you know sort of a general sort of base to support you, and yeah. and yeah, but then you think about it, and you're like, okay, well, this is all dropping the pool money when it comes to people like rest in peace, you arthol, Sheldon Adelson, for example, mm. who ran the Republican Party as a mega donor and was Jewish, and you know, so once you see all the sort of like you know allegiances and all the talking heads and all the cookers sort of fall apart and fall and break ranks and you start seeing where the money is because the classic money is pro-Israel.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, one of the most common dog whistles for Western imperialists, for lack of a better term, for far-right people, for white supremacists, for religious fundamentalists and so on is Judeo-Christian values. Yeah. Because the main thing is that, well, we're talking about Abrahamic religions, but we're excluding really one major party which is, which is the Muslims. So, you know, it's a way of talking about the barbarians at the gates outside of Israel who aren't Judeo-Christian or the, the, the savages in the Eastern Orientalist world without explicitly naming them. So you kind of avoid this allegation of racism in that way. To me, this has always been a really baffling idea to push of Judeo-Christian values, they tend to forget where the Holocaust had happened, yeah. like it was not committed by the Muslims. Yeah. And they tend to forget that actually for thousands of years, it was the Jews who lived quite peacefully on Arab lands and who faced pogrom after pogrom, massacre after massacre, in Europe by Christians. Yeah. So yeah. these guys like Joshua Lee, Jim Jordan, Matt Gates, they they tend to lean into this Cold War, this East versus West, Occidental versus Oriental idea, where it's Judeo-Christians who are civilized and intelligent who like to build things versus the, the Muslims who like to destroy things. And the easiest way out for them to avoid allegations of racism when they push this line is by supporting Israel's greatest friend and proxy in the, in, sorry, uh, is by supporting America's greatest friend and proxy in the Middle East, which is Israel.
0: Yeah. So this basically sounds like at the end of the day, especially when you know the, the presidency basically relies on a pro-Israel stance, even with these outliers and these cooker types playing their cards and fiddling around, at the end of the day, like you said, it seems like a sort of like East-West, very straight down the line type of thing. But... That's from a much more external source. When it comes to a more local source, a more domestic source, how do Israels view this thing? Are they pro-America? Do they see America as their saviors? Do they see America as a useful ally? Do they see them as useful idiots? Like what's the vibe from Israel that you sort of know of according Um, to their
1: allegiances, according to their alliances? Israel is sceptical and distrusting of the entire international community at large. Mm -hmm. I'd say that this skepticism and distrust is even slightly growing in the way that they view the Jewish diaspora. Okay. They have, I mean, whenever you look at studies of intergenerational trauma, who suffers from it and what its effects are, you're talking about studies on Jewish people. So these guys, they live in perpetual fear of another Holocaust happening, of uh, being overran by, by terrorists and by their enemies. And they are very aware that this can happen anytime, any place in theory, at least. Yep. Um, and they would suddenly argue that, well, it's a lot more than just theory. It's, it's a very real reality. And that even in places like, like Israel domestically, the Palestinians, if they were given the right of return, if they were given voting rights, they yep. would form a majority. Yeah, okay, yeah. In America, it's supposedly the land of the free and the brave. Yep. Lots of people living down by the river. Lots of people speaking their minds. You could say the same about the Weimar Republic in Germany in 19... Yeah, okay. And so there's this anxiety that the room can change within a decade.
0: And you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket just in case that happens.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so Israel will trust... America insofar as it sees an immediate opportunity for their own benefit. And they'll do Definitely. the same for Russia, for China, for India, for any other country you can name of. Because in their minds, every every single country around the world is analogous to Weimar Republic in nineteen twenties at best.
0: Yeah, okay. Yeah. It's a lack of sort of stability and trust in the in the whole thing. That's fair enough, yeah. So with Russia on the tongue, let's just divert off onto a bit of a tangent here because one thing that's interesting is Russian Jews with the right of return have been apparently, according to a phone call I had with Jack, they've been given the ass out of Russia and basically said, all right, mate, well, you've got citizenship in Israel. Why don't you fuck off there? Because you're a bit of a nutcase. We don't really want you here. Now, these are, you know, paraphrased and quite informal, but the idea of cooked Russian Jews – turning up in Israel with the right of return and just sort of hanging out there, I can't imagine that is a recipe for a good situation. Did things just go
1: badly as a result? Do you know much about this one? Yeah. The thing to understand with Israel is that it is a very international population with a lot of very fresh immigrants from all sorts of parts of the world.
0: Because of the right to return, I'm guessing.
1: Because of the right return. uh, And I would also argue because it's a settler colonial state. I mean, obviously, Israel is not, (laughs) in many ways, analogous to ISIS. But one interesting thing was ISIS actually released a brochure where they bragged about how they were the most multicultural nation in the world. That's very funny. (laughs) And they were advertising for their own tourism. And I mean, they may very well have made a point when you have such a new country that is settler colonial and full of new immigrants i mean you're really gonna get all all sorts of people who are some from africa some from the balkans some from russia yeah australia and so on and israel is similar in that sense now people generally towards the end of the soviet union they had quite a an assimilated section of jews who weren't very religious anymore you know had Maybe 25% Jewish DNA weren't really connected to that ancestry, and they qualified for the right of return when things started to go south after the collapse of the Soviet Union. They qualified for the right of return in Israel. Now, Israel's definition of who was a Jew influenced who qualifies for the right of return, and their definition yep. of a Jew was literally copy-pasted from the Nazis' definition under the Nuremberg Laws. Oh, interesting. Um, their idea was, well, listen, if the Nazis might try and get you, then we'll come and save you.
0: It was good enough for the Nazis, it was good enough for us.
1: Yeah, uh, that's it's I, I get it. I get
0: it, right? Like, you know, uh, if you
1: were in the crosshairs, then you'd be probably Jewish enough. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, this ran into some really massive issues because I don't exactly have the data on how much of a, a problem this was, how prevalent it was, but suddenly there there were some Russians who had no real connection or desire to be Jewish or to be someone who partakes in the state of Israel yep. who were simply looking for better economic conditions elsewhere. Yeah, just
0: get the fuck out of there. Yeah, that's yeah, fair.
1: Yeah. And Israel's immigration policy was far too lax for some if they had the right bloodlines and far too strict for others if they had the wrong bloodlines. Now, one really interesting case of this is a guy called Eric Bonite who had a grandparent who was Jewish and he was not a very nice Jewish boy. Okay. He became the ringleader of a neo-Nazi gang called Patrol 36 in Tel Aviv. And to this day, he was busted with, I believe it was the largest amount of bombs ever found on a person living in Israel.
0: Oof. That seems like a high prize too.
1: Yeah. You think, yeah, it's, it's suddenly a record to, to break. Almost well done. You know, now, I'm not even
0: angry. I'm just, I'm impressed.
1: Yeah. Eric Bonner, he, he called himself Eli the Nazi. Cool. And he said in interviews to the police afterwards, he said, my grandfather was a half Jew boy. I will not have children so that this trash will not be born with even a tiny percent of Jew boy blood. Wow. So There's a fair bit of self-loathing there. <laughs> so he returned under Israel's right-of-return immigration policy. It was very easy for him. And there's a significant number of Russian Jews in Israel who some of them really you know, do partake in nation-building and in Jewish culture, life, and religion in, in the state. But then there was also a significant section of the far right who said, you know, what the fuck are we doing letting in these, these immigrants who aren't really one of us into our country Yep. Most of the, the Russian Jews tended to be quite conservative, quite right wing, anyways. There's that yeah. uh, tendency of people who leave Soviet states where they tend to blame anything that's wrong in the country on the leftism and yep. tend to think that anyone who supports any sort of tax rates is, is a communist. <laughs> but, you know, there was this civil war within the, the right wing discourse of the state about, about Russian immigrants, certainly interesting interesting so yeah i mean like when you get situations
0: like that coming up you are going to raise a bit of an eyebrow but i'm like you know without sounding like a bigger an asshole i must say the russians are a funny bunch you know not just on the basis of disinformation not just on the basis of the fact that putin's an asshole they are just a funny bunch of characters so yeah the idea of you know some people taking up their opportunity for the right of return and just being a bit fucking weird like that i mean it's not hugely surprising
1: yeah yeah. Uh, they're a
0: funny bunch. That's that's and, what I'll say.
1: And to me, it, it really is a, a very powerful analogy for the fundamental failures of Israel's concept, where so much of the ideology of the nation is built around, you know, undoing the Holocaust. Yeah, they they drafted their whole immigration laws not only to the detriment of Palestinians to benefit anyone who is. Jewish under the very, very vague laws of, of Nuremberg, which well, they were designed to be vague. They were designed so that the Nazis can go after anyone who they wanted to and yeah. say this person's a Jew.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And now you're gonna run into it.
1: problems where where Nazis are gonna claim to be Jewish so that they can get into your country and How blow fucking it up from bizarre. the inside. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's it's yeah, that is very, very bizarre. It's a very strange turn of events and it's one of those things that like, you know, truth is strange of the fiction type type story really. Yeah. Yeah. So let's just look at further far-right elements in Israel and some of the cook shit they get up to. Is there one of those things that sort of stands out as to just a fucking weird thing that far-right people in Israel have done other than just, you know, being Nazis and trying to blow people up because that makes total sense?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, to me, one of the real significant issues that Cook latch latched onto, and actually the far left too in Israel, is the Yitzhak Rabin assassination. A lot of claims okay. going around that it's an inside job. The left, of course, saying that it was because they, the the government and state, did not want to give away Palestinian sovereignty, and the far right saying that it was because they knew that giving the Palestinian sovereignty would, in fact, only make the issue worse, and the Robin wasn't listening to the intelligence, and so then, therefore, they had to take him out. Again, this this assassination conspiracy theory is a lot more popular within the far right, but certainly not limited to them. There's a lot of bullshit being peddled, of course, like any conspiracy theory. And actually, full disclaimer, this was the beginning of me being pilled on conspiracies. I mean, after this, it led to 9/11 and oh really uh, moon landing conspiracies oh wow you got pilled I got pilled very hard and it was actually my dad who pilled me on this one <laughs> so this one is quite common among the Israeli conservatives it holds a special place in my own heart so yeah this this is a conspiracy theory which is a little bit close to my heart it's the first one that I was pilled on now let's begin with some context on Yitzhak Rabin. He was a Israeli prime minister in the 90s. Yep. Who was a general for many years and then went on to be this a, peacenik. Okay. Yeah, peacenik who wanted to solve the, the, the war. Well, war and is kind of shit. So, you know. He signed and drafted the Oslo Accords together with okay. Yasser Arafat. And what the Yasser Arafat did was that it established the Palestinian Authority yep. and made promises of. Bilaterally moving towards more sovereignty for the Palestinians, more self determination, more statehood.
0: And this included
1: withdrawing settlements, settlers, uh, settlers and settlements, didn't it? That was a decade later with Ariel Sharon. Ah, interesting. Yeah, he, Chabron, interesting. There used to be settlers inside Gaza, and yep. Ariel Sharon withdrew those. Okay, um, so Rabin was also, more just giving legitimacy yeah. to the. The Palestinians as there, like
0: a yeah
1: yeah there were also threats against Ariel Sharon's life, including by Yigal Amir's co-conspirators. Yigal Amir was the man who was actually sh- carried out the shooting of Yitzhak Rabin. Interesting. And wow. His co-conspirators from jail continued to make threats against Ariel Sharon a year You'd later. You believe them?
0: You would yeah, believe well, them? They, they, they do they have, have say the resume. Credible threats.
1: They yeah. like to call them. <laughs> Fuck that. Now. Yigal Amir, he was a far-right, politically active man who attended a rally several months before, Yep. organized by who, the man who was then the opposition leader in Israel, Bibi Netanyahu. This man's been oh, around a very long time.
0: Been around for so long. That's like 30 years ago. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and Bibi held a mock funeral at one of the protests attended by Amir Held a mock funeral for Rabin where he carried a fake coffin through the rally.
0: Wow. Just um, like, oh, yeah, you've got threats on your life, but here we find that funny.
1: Yeah. There were other rallies which were organized which depicted Rabin dressed up in a Nazi SS uniform. Okay. Or, you know, placards with Rabin's head in the crosshairs of a gun. Nice. These are rallies organized by Likud. Yeah! Wow. There the were, moderate
0: party of all
1: things. Yeah, there were protesters <laughs> comparing uh, Yitzhak Rabin's Labor Party to the Nazis. Cool. Uh, Rabin to Adolf Hitler. Nice. There were chance of "Rabin is a murderer." Rabin is a traitor. Nice. And the chief of internal security inside Israel, Karmi Gilon, also alerted Netanyahu to a plot on Rabin's life and asked him to moderate the protest's rhetoric. And Netanyahu said, "Fuck that! I'm going to keep on doing this." <laughs> Yeah.
0: Yeah. But that's the thing. Like, you know, you can say, oh, I've got no intention to incite violence. That's what fucking cookers do. They go around saying, hang down Andrews. And then when they're interviewed, they say, oh, look, we're, we're just peaceful people, mate. You know, we're just everyday people. We're just peaceful. On Facebook, you tell people to hang down Andrews. And then you go out and you're surprised that someone brings in a noose. I mean, come on.
1: Yes. I mean, yeah. these are all metaphors, of course, which he me, course. just took literally. Who can blame him? Who can blame him? Yeah. And I mean, surprise, surprise. You know, it just... Someone took it literally. <laughs> they did. They did. And, and the last chance
0: of fucking peace at that period was shot in the face and there was a warning, that just don't try this.
1: Yeah. And these conspiracies are, I think, yes, they are present on the left wing in Israel. They're much more popular on the right. And I think that the sur- okay. the, the purpose it serves among the right is to absolve themselves of responsibility and maybe even say like the intelligence agencies know we're right even if they don't say it but yeah. you can really see through their actions that they, they actually did not want Robin's plans to go through so i mean this is this is just really bullshit of the highest order and in fact as well Patalo Smotrich who is a running in the same party as Itamar Ben-Gvir as the party leader he is in Israel's cabinet. He is a, a big peddler of this conspiracy theory. So, I mean, it really has reached the highest levels of government. Now, what exactly is the evidence that they claim there is for there being a conspiracy? Well, there's a lot of fabricated information. One is that the, the ambulance took 20 minutes to make a five-minute trip, which should be a five-minute trip to the nearest hospital. Okay. That it took a detour. This is false. Then there is, you know, they claim that in this detour from the ambulance, that that was where Yitzhak Rabin was actually shot inside the ambulance. Oh, wow. That's strong. Yeah, they claim that it was a publicity stunt originally organized by Rabin's own team to, to get sympathy from voters and that there were bodyguards nearby who, who yelled out when Rabin was shot just after leaving a rally in a very public town square surrounded by voters. They, they claimed that his bodyguards had screamed out, don't worry, it's blanks. These are blanks. So the, the bullets were at least claimed to not be real. And then they took him into the ambulance where Rabin was pretending that he was shot. And then they shot him for good at point blank range. Then, I mean, there were claims that Yitzhak Rabin's own wife has spoken to the media saying that she herself was given advance notice of this and that these were blanks. This is denied by Rabin's own wife. She's spoken out many times against the way that the right wing exploits the the conspiracies against her own dead husband. So that's also false. Yagil Amir, they claim... The conspiracy's claim originally pled not guilty and denied capability. Mm-hmm. Sorry, denied culpability. Culpability,
0: yeah. Capability
1: is another legal term. <laughs> he certainly had the capability. Yeah. Um, and again, this is false. He, he pled guilty the entire time. He was actually quite proud of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there is the sort of usual bullshit where the far right will say it didn't happen, but it if it did happen, well, we're, we're proud that it did. So they actually celebrate Yigal Amir as a, a hero and a martyr of the cause. Yeah. Yeah, so, it sort of prevented uh, uh, the horrible reality of a two-state solution. Yeah. And there there is a, a quote going around where Amir allegedly said, I haven't fact-checked this one, that he said to the media that if he had said everything that he knows of the inside of the state of Israel, then the state will collapse. Yeah, wow. So, you know, this has led to further conspiracies that, you know, he's some sort of paid actor, paid assassin who was hired by someone. At the end of the day, I mean, all of this evidence is either completely debunked or a real stretch, a real fabrication. And I think it it really goes to show how... The cookers will find a way to make anything about themselves, and mm-hmm. that these conspiracies almost always serve a purpose to confirm pre-existing narratives inside the conspiracy theorist's own head. Yeah, the right wing want to absolve themselves of responsibility, and the left wing want to say that the the right wing were, you know, looking for and. At the end of the day, it really shouldn't be that complicated. We have a man who is proud to be the shooter, who's continued yep. to make death threats against Israel, Israel's prime minister.
0: Yeah, him and his mates. He's lauded yep. as
1: a hero, and it's pled guilty. It's we pretty think simple. It's straightforward.
0: It's pretty simple. Yeah, it's frustratingly simple in that regard. Yeah, and that's the fog of war. It's you know it's created and it's dumb. Yeah, that's incredibly frustrating. Well, I mean, realistically, the next thing to sort of, you know, sum things up is basically this conflict has generated a shitload of misinformation and it's hard to know who's doing what, blah, blah, blah. But one thing we can say is that Twitter is being called out for being a massive haven of disinformation, mostly pro-Israeli. But even then, there's very suspicious things going on. One thing that's really suspect that's been happening recently is you cannot follow this group called Palestinian Action US. Now, I'm looking right now at my Twitter, and I have not followed Palestine Action US, pal underscore action US. Try this at home. It's probably fixed by the time you get to this episode. I click follow again. I've clicked follow on this group like 20 times now over the past two days, and I just get unfollowed. It just stops me from following these people. This is free speech absolutist Elon Musk, of course. It's it's interesting when he's getting called out for facilitating disinformation about Israel and being staunchly pro-Israel, when he's also got apparently alliances to the Middle East insofar as Saudi money with the investors and, of course, being a shill for Russia. It's very hard to predict this motherfucker there is something funny going on when you can't follow Palestine action u s and it just unfollows you automatically, something fucking wacky is going on and these uh, like remotely resembles humanitarian concern for Palestine. Cat turd 2 has a fucking blue chick but the New York Times can't have one like just are you fucking serious? so like what like what's your experience of misinformation since this conflict kicked off because it's just, To me, this has been an example of the fact that post-truth theory is not only here to stay, but something that is going to sort of kill us all, really, because it's just so deeply entrenched in our media landscape now.
1: Yeah, it it makes a very difficult job for any of us who are wanting to follow the conflict. And I am definitely not a journalist, but I'm really trying to pick my words carefully here to only speak about things that I am confident have answers for rather than things that, you know, the evidence implies or things that we we can't really know. Not sort of vague shit, yeah. I am, for example, really unable to say that a lot of the stories on the ground of Gaza or on the ground of the Israeli border are entirely false. Certainly some of them, some of the stories have been called into question. Like, for example stories of babies being burned alive or 40 babies being beheaded. Apparently, photographic evidence of this was shown by Bibi Netanyahu to Joe Biden privately in a face-to-face meeting. And Biden reported on having to see those photos. Certain images as well, which were posted by Ben Shapiro and the State of Israel's official Twitter account of these photos were deemed to be Containing AI edits, AI generation
0: okay, interesting
1: and Biden ended up walking back on his claim that that this had occurred, and it, it puts me in a very tricky spot again, I'm not saying that these stories have been debunked, but I'm not comfortable to say that sufficient evidence has has been put forward to believe that they had happened. Suddenly, lots of babies have been killed by Hamas and generally speaking throughout the conflict. Were 40 babies beheaded at the border? Time will tell. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's lots of other stories going around, like a a pregnant mother and her baby slowly dying after the baby was ripped out from the womb and severed from the umbilical cord. Several stories of mass rapes by Hamas terrorists. I, again... I am not comfortable saying that this didn't happen but I yeah. you know there were very credible reports what seemed credible at first by state government agencies by by prime ministers and presidents that this had happened and the credibility of those reports has really diminished over time I would say that you know we should be really careful any listeners should be really careful to make claims about things that they don't know I am not really comfortable coming down on any side regarding this this bombing of a hospital in Gaza at the moment. Yeah. I, I have my own opinions about what's more likely, but I have no way of really knowing what's for what sure What I happened.
0: can say is they had a lot of people do independent research on it and Bellingcat also had a look at it and said that it looked pretty suspect as well. So I do trust Bellingcat when it comes to this sort of stuff. And, mm. yeah, it's not... It's, it's similar to The Voice, where, for example, when in when the Voice election was happening, like the referendum was happening, and, and there were posters with the Yes campaign that had a similar shade of purple to A, and the No campaign, especially people like Russian Fernando and shit like that, were just squealing. Oh, my God, disinformation. You guys are doing a dirty trick. It's disgusting. And it's like, okay, I'm not going to stand here and say that using purple in that context, even as an accident, it's a dumb accident, if you are trying to emulate some kind of officiality with AEC colours, then, yeah, that's fucking cheeky and it's not on, and, like, you shouldn't do that. But for no campaigners to say that, nah, fuck you. You don't get to say that. You have spread so much disinformation during this referendum that it's going to be studied for years to come as one of the most prolific and insane experiences of disinformation in the post-truth era, second only possibly to the conflict we're talking about now. Uh. Fuck you. You do not get to speak about unfairness, dirty tactics and disinformation. So when it comes to this sort of situation here and this sort of outrage about the hospital claim, I'm not going to stand there and say that if Hamas did come out and misfire a rocket or even blew up a car park in order to get some kind of fucked up brownie points on the international stage. I'm not going to cheerlead for it, but with the amount of disinformation and the amount of absolute propaganda that's floating around, don't get on your high horse. Yeah. You know, call it out, but don't pretend like you're not doing the same fucking thing. You absolute fucking hypocrites. That being said- no one should ever tolerate this sort of behavior on either side and everyone
1: should be calling it out.
0: But that's not the world we live in.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, one of the really tricky things that, that fuels the misinformation in this uh, conflict as well is that both sides really focus on recruiting citizen journalists for the cause a great deal. Yeah. The Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs disseminates talking points to Jewish and pro-Israeli groups around the world. Yeah, yeah. Where they given given information on how to perform what's called Hasbara, which is the Hebrew word of to explain, I say it really has more of a translation akin to how to propagandize the conflict. And yeah. the people who engage in Hasbara are just everyday normal people who you know they, they get their talking points from Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Israel or adjacent mm-hmm. organizations. And they come out with these talking points onto, you know, uni campuses, onto, you know, restaurant dinner tables, onto coffee meetings with their mates, onto Twitter, and so on. And then, of course, in in Gaza as well, journalists are completely prohibited from coming in through the border at the moment. There are no foreign journalists inside Gaza at the moment. That's interesting. Yeah, so what we're left with is journalists from within Gaza, of which there are very few, um, and citizen too. journalists as well. Yeah. Um, mind you, the citizen journalists are dealing with massive hurdles to overcome, like they, they have no electricity to charge their phones. Yeah. Um, and or, or no electricity to type things up on their laptop. When they overcome these hurdles, you can see little bits of uh, their reporting coming through, but it's, it's incredibly hard to find. hmm And it's left the world with close to a complete media blackout of really what's happening on the ground in Israel in Gaza what we get coming out of there is only a very select few bits of videos bits of footage bits of yeah. reports by local citizens and we we need to take into account that you know this is a conflict which for better and for worse is the, being fueled in, in terms of public discourse by citizen journalists, by, um, you know, propaganda It used to sound like a good thing. Their-
0: yeah, like citizen journalism sounded like such an amazing thing and such a beautiful new, like future thing. We were going to be walking into this new era of impartiality because there's no corporate influences. There's no advertisers to veto stories. We're going to be in this amazing situation where it turns out that advertisers don't fucking veto stories. And people in journalism, despite the Daily Mail and despite some of the trash that comes up on news.com.au, they do have a charter and they do tend to stick to it and there is an underlying code of ethics that journalists have that these citizen journalist fuckheads like Ruxin Fernando or fucking Avi Yemeni don't have. You're not journalists. You are click peddlers. You are attention-seeking whores. And that is a real shame because when a fuckhead like Elon Musk comes out and basically says citizen journalism is a future and then we're going to pay you to get views and impressions on Twitter, well, what are you going to get? You're going to get trash. You're going to get low attention span, clickbait, trash. And it's a real shame because this – so like you know what's going what's capitalism going to ruin next well citizen journalism has been well and truly smashed out as a concept because what would have been this incredible version of like independent media like independent music has just turned out to be a bunch of like i say you know attention seeking profit driven morons who will just say anything to get attention it's a real fucking shame absolutely yeah, it drives me fucking nuts. But yeah, that's been a real driver of disinformation and misinformation in this field because basically when you pay for a click and there's no fact-checking, especially when you're in a situation like with, with the cookers where you've established the concept that fact-checking is actually bad and, and, you know, the opposite of what the fact-checkers say is true, well, where do you go from there,
1: you know? yeah. Well, you're fucked. One really important framework that I use to interpret, you know, the media when there's a lot of misinformation around some topic is you need to understand that mainstream news sites yes, they are very often misleading. They often strip things from context, but they very, very rarely flat out lie yeah. because this leaves them, you know, legally liable.
0: Legally and also ethically as well, uh, yeah. you know. And this is why we have like things like Media Watch where, you know, if you do something that is egregious, Paul Barry will make your week the worst week of your life. And that's, you know, there is a level of integrity there. I'm sure there are some people who would see being on Media Watch as a badge of honour. It is difficult to get anything more than a fringe part of the population to respect them.
1: Yeah. Now, if... You as a listener or you, Joel, let's say pro-Israel or pro-Palestine or you have your opinions on whatever it is, still the most important thing you can do for yourself in terms of media literacy and understanding misinformation in, in this conflict or anything really is to check both sides of mainstream news, check Al Jazeera and check Jerusalem yeah. Post.
0: I think a lot of people, I've heard people anecdotally saying they're turning to Al Jazeera at the moment. Right. And, and you kind of need to because at the moment it feels like the Western media are really cheerleading to Israel in a way that is incomplete. Right.
1: But, you know, they will still – they might – again, I don't believe that mainstream news sites really blatantly lie all that often. No, no, they, no I agree with that. But what you'll see is that Jerusalem Post and Al Jazeera will largely report on different facts – yeah, uh, emphasize different aspects. Emphasize different aspects. At times, you'll see that they report the same facts with entirely different context. And this allows someone who's a little bit more media literate to actually really cut through the shit and see that the truth really lies or the really profound details lie in what's omitted. Yeah. 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 When you see Jerusalem Post leave out certain bits of context that you think are so obvious or, or Al Jazeera leave out bits of context that are so obvious that any responsible journalist should actually put those in, it yeah. becomes very obvious that they are trying to advance a particular narrative from a, a certain way and that they do not feel comfortable with certain facts precisely because those facts are the most powerful talking points to convince a certain population in the opposite way.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a pain in the ass. The current landscape is just an absolute pain in the ass. Mm. So basically, this conflict is going to kill a lot of civilians on both sides, mostly Palestinians from here on in because of the nature of the power imbalance. We've got a excellent understanding now of the historical impact that the, you know, sort of, to put it loosely, apartheid state and general... Two-state solution, which has been basically just two states of living. One living reasonably comfortably in a liberal society and the other living under military rule in a place with limited resources. That's shitty. And I think with the way in which the West has come out, guns blazing, no pun intended, for Israel, they have really ironed over the fact that Palestinians are people who have been just constantly kicked in the nuts – and about to experience a horrible situation that's being enabled by those who generally tend to give us our, you know, sort of social moral cues, like, you know, politicians and social leaders who have always come out and basically said, well, the Palestinians brought this upon themselves, which is an incredibly depressing and stupid thing to say. And I really wish we could taper that off a bit because it's been a bit much. But when I thought to get you on the show, I thought that you were going to give us a balanced perspective on someone who understands and knows Israel intimately but doesn't agree with the subjugation of peoples but still will be happy to respect that Israel has a right to exist and exists within a certain paradigm and Palestine has a similar right to exist and also exists within a certain paradigm and I feel like we've delivered a fairly reasonable understanding of the dynamic between the two, but also a very interesting insight into how Israel and Palestine work together and separately within those borders as two states, you could say, although one's a state and one's a territory. Mm. So it's been an interesting chat. I've learned a lot from this, and, and while it's been a long journey over the two parts, it's it's been fascinating, and I think I'm going to come out of this Knowing more, because I, when I saw the Israel-Palestine thing, thinking we needed to cover it, I don't know shit about this, not in a meaningful way, and I don't have enough hours in the year to find out. So, thank you very much for filling in that gap, because you really did bring a lot of wisdom to the table, which I could very much just not have done. It just would have been impossible.
1: Yeah. Well, I want to thank you and any listeners who made it this far, because you've listened to someone who's ruined many first dates with uninterested partners by speaking for way too long about Israel Palestine. You guys have sat through.
0: They've been heroes, haven't they? They've really got through. They've, <laughs> they've done to. a very good job. Getting to this point is impressive, although we did split into two parts because otherwise this was going to be a Rogan-esque journey. So hopefully there's been a bit of a breather in there for you. But look, you know, the Israel-Palestine conflict, it's it's the flavour of the month and it may be the flavour of the year. We don't really know, um, but we will try and come back another time with more hilarious cooker-related anecdotes of idiots saying dumb things because it's been very serious. But thanks for bearing with us on a fairly serious trip down a very serious issue from a perspective that I think just isn't really getting covered, which is someone who knows about Israel, who isn't just cheerleading for the death of Palestinians en masse, Because they deserve it.
1: Uh, Unfortunately, these opinions are rarer and rarer inside Israel. However, like the Haaretz editorial, which I read out in full, uh, you are getting a a massive amount of uh, dissenting opinions in one way or another or blame uh, against the Israeli government from 86% of the population, which frankly just isn't being reported in our media. So it's nice to finally... Uh, give at least that side of Israeli society a voice here in Australia. Yeah.
0: yeah I haven't heard many people saying, oh, in Harrets, in our, in our public discourse, which is good. So yeah, thanks for coming on. Really appreciate your time and research on this one. Because I know that when I told you, can you come on the show, you started working very hard on this. So thank you very much. And uh, thanks listeners for getting through this. Go and crack a beer. Unless you've already been drinking and then listen to it again because you may not remember it. Sweet. <laughs> and you have been listening to the Condition Release Program. Unfortunately, I'm not used to saying this because Jack usually says it. I'm Joel Hill. You are Yaakov Aron. And
1: where do people want to find you on Twitter, social media? Do you have a presence? Listen, I'm not really active on social media. I used to be quite a bit, but yep. it can be quite taxing. Yeah, um, it is. Instead, Spinch. I guess I'll plug my favorite journalist on the subject. Nice. Orly Noi. How do you spell Fantastic. that? Fantastic. Listen, O-R-L-Y yep. space N-O-Y. Orly nice. Noy She's an Israeli-Iranian Jewish journalist. Wow. Who talks very intimately about the, the position of Arab Jewish voters within Israel and what they can do for the conflict. There's Anthony Lowenstein, yep. a, an Australian Jewish journalist. Yep. Fantastic. Yep. Randa Abdel Fattah another Australian-Palestinian journalist and, and lawyer and academic. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the Thomas works of Noam Chomsky. Yes.
0: Yeah, going back in the vault that one. Yeah. God, he's getting old. He's getting very old. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Now, I'll remind listeners that we do a Patreon and while I don't have a amusing anecdote in the script in front of me, I can beg you for money. So, give us money. But if you don't want to give us money because you just don't think we're worthy, give money to CB Co. Because if you use the CRP10 code this month, which you don't make a commission on or anything, it's literally just because I thought it'd be cool to have a discount. You get 10% off and it's already really cheap. So, it's actually pretty ridiculous. Go and buy some beer. Thank you so much for coming on
1: and thanks listeners. Thanks, listeners. See you later. Cheers for making it this far. I don't
0: think I ever want to talk to any of those people.